Welcome to episode 428 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we feature an environmentally astute conversation with environmental law attorney, professor, and the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, talking with us from his office in Denver, Colorado, regular contributor Michael R. Harris. And we delve into a very intriguing history of wild horses in America. We talk about repopulating endangered species in Western Africa, duck stamps, the movie The Misfits, and where all the cattle in the cattle industry from the U.S. really end up when all said and done, among other things. An environmentally intriguing, insightful conversation with Michael R. Harris this week on the program. We have an EW essay titled Black Bear. I share an excerpt from an essay by Leo Tolstoy titled The First Step. And we have a poem called Ment. All of this will be imbued infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. So why don't we get to it? Episode 428 of Troubadours and Tours. It's nice to have you with us. Oh uh-huh. 
black bear. Cecil the lion in Africa, dentist the menace in America, wild horses in the mountains of Utah, way before Vermont's Joseph Smith ever set foot there. But beware, all you sentient beings, we western white men need trophies to spruce up our dens of iniquity. Your heads will reflect nicely off the glass bottles of crystal that hold our bourbon, scotch, whiskey, and wine. As the mahogany grandfather clock tick-tocks away and brings the future into our alpha foray of all time, for manly men are we. My ex-father-in-law is a small game hunter. He has the head of a buck mounted on the wall over a spinet piano in a small foyer perpendicular to the staircase of his middle, middle-class home. I remember the first time I saw it when I came calling for his daughter. I thought, look at that buck. Are those eyes his real eyes? What the f- But my mind shifted to other matters quickly, for I was on a hunt of my own, I suppose. Recently, black bear are roaming the streets of my home, eating garbage and purveying the scene. There are many rabbits. I know of two burrow holes inside my evergreen bushes. And today... A fog of hot summer morning in between thunderstorms hangs and floats naturally over and through our mountain place. Though the old world wild big predator species are gone without a trace, how else could we be? You ain't nothing but a hound dog Not to
Morning, EW. Hello, Michael R. Harris. How are you? I'm doing just fine. Thank you. Michael R. Harris, a regular contributor on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. He's an environmental law attorney, a professor, and the director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, among other things. And he's talking with us from his office in Denver, Colorado. How are things going, my friend? Well, things are going very well, um, particularly at work. Um, my only setback is my, my puppy's been a little ill for the last uh, few weeks. The poor thing has an autoimmune disease. Oh, yeah. It's only nine months old, so we've been to the vet quite a bit this week. Um, yeah, but um, he's on the men's, we think. Yeah, great to hear. And, and what's his name? His name is Pan. P-A-N, that's the Greek god of wild things. <laughs> perfect, perfect. <laughs> I thought you were Pan. I am Pan, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> I, I live through him as well on, on adventures that I cannot take on two feet. <laughs> awesome. And um, I've been, you know, looking at some of the stuff that Friends of Animals has uh, been publishing and I, you know, uh, through their newsletter, uh, blog, what have you. And I've noticed some movement with wild horses in Utah, some some situations that you're concerned about, uh, Cecil's Law, <clears throat> excuse me, as well. Uh, you want to get into some of those uh, things? Yeah, I got, I got something to start off with that's uh, really a cool, upbeat story, if you want, something that's probably not on your list. Sure. Um, you know, Friends of Animals, in, in addition to all this litigation and legal work we do, we've had a long history of... Um, helping repopulate native uh, species that have, uh, you know, teetered on the edge of extinction. Uh, for instance, we have uh, worked in um, Western Africa quite a bit to repopulate um, antelope species that had been hunted um, to almost extinction in the wild. And, and, and over the last 30 years, we've built um, uh, and protected uh, big reserve, um, preserves of these antelope in that area. So it's really been cool. But um, one animal that had been um, uh, extinct in East uh, Western Africa for quite some time now is uh, the ostrich. And um, we have been working with the Israeli government. Um, uh, we have a, 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 a person here at Friends of Animals who does our policy and international work by the name of Bill Clark. He has worked uh, with people on the ground in uh, West Africa and with the Israeli government. And during the pandemic and all of the all of the difficulties that um, that it presented, uh, we were able to transport over 23 ostrich eggs from Israel to West Africa, and they started hatching last month. And wow. um, so we got these baby ostriches um, that are back uh, in their uh, native land for the first time in decades. And uh, that's really exciting. I got another update today that a, a few more of the, the eggs have hatched. And we're hoping for a good 20 to, you know, 23 ostriches make it uh, back uh, to the wild. Wow, that's a, that's amazing. And, and how did you partner up with Israel? How'd that happen? Bill uh, actually has been uh, involved with the Israeli delegation to uh, CITES, which is the Convention on International Trade and Endangered Species, for some time now. So he has a good relationship with them. And uh, Israel has actually been a real strong conservation partner for many wildlife groups. Um, they've been very supportive and helpful in, uh, in protecting wildlife abroad. That's the actual government or organizations that are just, uh, they happen to be in Israel? 
Uh, the actual government. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Better than the U.S., would you say? Um, I would definitely say so. <laughs> Particularly, uh, you know, the, the U.S. has really lost uh, any strong footing uh, in the international conservation uh, community. They just haven't come to bat very often for anything. Um, you know, we see the issues with whales, for instance, and the Japanese re, um, restarting uh, whaling uh, enterprises. Um, and, and the U.S. has just been silent, uh, even on things like Zimbabwe's um, really just declaration of war on its own wildlife. Um, the U.S. hasn't taken any stance for more than a, more than five or six years now. Wow. And uh, we're, go ahead. we're petitioning them to ask them to step up, but we just haven't heard anything yet. Do you go through the Department of Interior there? Do you go, where do you go for the BLM? Well, that'd be more, I guess, uh, national. Yeah, we've gone through uh, both Fish and Wildlife Service and the Department of State, petitioning both of those to uh, issue strong declarations against uh, some of these activities, the whaling or Zimbabwe's selling off of its wildlife, uh, and to um, to uh, you know take uh, take some s- sanction measures against them as well. Great. I hope I hope they uh, respond. You know, I mean, you would think we have a new administration, one that. Pre- uh, purports itself to be progressive. Hopefully, in this area, they're progressive too. Yeah, I, I hope so. I hope they're just still getting their footing and, and you know c- catching up. And there's a lot of domestic things that they need to uh, undo as well that uh, was harmful to wildlife and the environment. And they have stepped up um, to um, a good extent uh, on some of those. So, for instance, we've talked in the past about. The Trump administration signing a memorandum of understanding with the National Rifle Association days before the inauguration in January. Uh, they have the Biden administration has um, uh, has canceled that MOU. Great. Uh, they sent a letter uh, two months ago to the NRA after we filed a lawsuit challenging that MOU, um, telling them that they were going to cancel it within 30 days. That 30 days has passed. So it is canceled. Likewise, the, the the Trump administration passed that ridiculous rule we talked about previously about duck stamps. Those are those conservation stamps that are sold. Um, uh, they got pictures of ducks on them. It's a program that goes back to the 1940s, mm-hmm. uh, requiring that the imagery so artists compete to have their work on these stamps. And it's a big uh, honor to be selected to to be um, to have your art on the stamp. They have to now have um, hunting imagery right right <laughs> and uh the um biden administration just issued a proposed rulemaking to eliminate that requirement and again we filed lawsuit um challenging them so um we're trying to keep them keep them honest but yeah there's been some movement um you mentioned wild horses yeah so, utah i there from what i understand they're not doing so well the biden administration yeah, so the, the the question is really, you know, what what is this administration going to do? Um, so far, it hasn't issued in any formal policy on on wild horses, and they continue with the policies of the past, which is just round them up, round them up, round them up, and and doing so to appease um, grazers, right, who want to use that land um, for cattle and sheep, and so. We, we think they're gonna. There's gonna be some changes. We think, but we just don't know what direction this is all gonna head in. Um, 
we just don't have a good read on the new Secretary of Interior, that's uh, Deb Haaland, um, what her, her view is on this. So, yeah, we're currently challenging a big roundup that's taking place to a group of wild horses outside of Salt Lake City that that are totally beloved and one of the most visited herds in, in all of the West. Um, and they're proposing to start rounding them up next week. Uh, my colleague, Jennifer Best, is actually in court, uh, will be in court on Tuesday, um, arguing to stop that roundup. Yeah, I was reading about it. What, uh, they have a, an interesting name. It sounds like it's an indigenous uh, people's uh, uh, language that the name comes from. I'm not sure, though. I, I think it's Onakwi. Uh, the Onakwi, yes, that's correct. Uh, the, those are the wild horses right outside of Salt Lake City. You know, so some of the horse um, uh, the horse bands that we work with are usually in some pretty remote areas. So it's pretty difficult and a challenge to go out and actually view them. You really got to dedicate some time, a couple of days, to get out there and back. And uh, but this particular herd um, is really just within driving distance of Salt Lake City, so it has a you know has a lot of admirers and followers, particularly photographers. Yeah, you know, I mean, wild horses—they have such a, a beauty to them. Such a—we've a, 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 talked about this before—the the, a spirit that oftentimes we, as you know, citizens or folks who live in the United States, embrace as a sort of our own type of rep- representation of our own spirit as people. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, you know the the bison, the buffalo, or the bison is our national mammal, but it you know. I think uh, to many, uh, the spirit of the West in particular and, the, and, the, and liberty and all the other American ideals is sort of uh, embodied in the wild horse for sure. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely a symbol of freedom. Well, you know, I was reading that article and, and, uh, that I, I found on, on uh, Friends of Animals uh, blog, and it, it made a nice comparison of, of how uh, it seems the Department of Interior – uh, I guess the Bureau of Land Management, um, they're okay with, as you already sort of alluded to, uh, uh, many more sheep uh, grazing on, on land nearby, and, uh, many more cattle uh, using the land nearby, but not the wild horses. And I, surmi- I surmise it's because the cattle and the sheep are part of some business industry, and those humans that make money off that industry have a lobby that is powerful, whereas the wild horses, who's speaking for them but for you folks at Friends of Animals and other like-minded groups? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think um, wildlife in general on public lands, um, you know, sort of have this dual threat um, against them. One, as you said, uh, is that the livestock industry, the grazers are so not only a powerful lobby, um, but really they are also much of what makes up the Western governments, right? And you think of, you know, who runs Wyoming and who's running, you know, um, Montana. These are the grazing interests that are in office there as well. And so not only is it, um, is it a private, you know, lobbyists, but it's the, the state governments and local governments as well. Um, and then, you know, we all know, how that can get out of control with like the Bundy instance, right? I mean, they, these guys, you know, they bear arms against the Fish and Wildlife Service and the Bureau of Land Management on occasion. Uh, so there's certainly BLM working to appease these interests. And then the other 
sort of side of that coin is BLM makes its money off of those permits, right? So particularly local field offices, BLM is a really interesting organization in that it's, um, that it's uh, while it's, of course, a, a federal government agency, it's actually most of its management is at the local level. There are field offices that scatter the West. And so these guys have a personal relationship with these grazers. And these field offices are funded by the permit fees that mm. they take in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you really have a situation in which it just it, it not only is politically easier for these local field office employees at BLM to appease the the, the ranchers, but it's also, you know, how they're going to stay open and in business. Yeah, that's a great uh, that's a great insight for sure. And it's only going to get worse because of the drought. Um, and that means you have less forage out there for you know, whether it's wild animals and horses or whether it's cattle and sheep. So who's going to win that is, you know, it's going to be the cattle and sheep. Right. And ultimately the humans that need the cattle and sheep, right? Because, and, and it's it's very much, I think, a human being, uh, the, the fault of human beings that there's a drought, you know, uh, because of climate change. So over and over again, you could trace back a lot of these issues that other animals have to deal with to we animals, humans, our behavior. Correct. Very correct. Uh, that's, that's absolutely true. And, and, you know, and we know that, that cattle on public lands, um, that's one of the worst environmental problems our lands face. I mean, they are so destructive of the habitat out there um, the way they eat the, the, the forage right down to the nub. Um, we know that they contribute to climate change because of the methane gas that they emit from, from, um, from being grazed out there. And so all of this, it's just, a, it's just, you know, impact upon impact, and it's out of control. And the thing, too, is uh, I think it's important for your listeners to know most of these cattle aren't going to feed Americans, <laughs> Um, we used to, you know, when we only, um, raised beef for domestic purposes, there were a lot less cattle on public lands, but we have really, you know, because quite, quite frankly, beef consumption in the United States has fallen primarily because people are living healthier lifestyles. And so ranchers had to find new markets Mm -hmm. and, uh, and most of these, these cattle are being shipped overseas, particularly to Asia. And so we're not, you know, we're just, we're destroying our public lands, ruining our wildlife and harming our environment. uh, And all for, for someone to sell animals overseas. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It it really is crazy. And you know, I don't, as you said, our listeners should know, I don't think a lot of people know these, these uh, truths. I really don't. I, you know, you have to look for them. They're not all over the place. You don't hear people really, you know, mainstream media or in, in classrooms really discussing these issues. No, no, of course not. You know, um, ranchers, of course, hold themselves out as, you know, feeding America and being, the, you know, being part of the breadbasket. Um, but that's that's not who they are. And that's not they're not making enough money from the domestic markets to make it worth their while. 
And so, <clears throat> yeah, they are just um, they're just using our lands and our resources for their own benefit. And those cattle are being exported um, in large numbers. I mean, way, way vast majority of the cattle are are not domestically consumed. So one other thing on wild horses, I think, is imp- I don't know if you saw this article. It was in the New York Times a few weeks back. Um, you know, when they round these horses up, BLM rounds them off the public lands. They are prohibited by Congress to send them to slaughter. That wasn't true 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Uh, most horses ended up actually in dog food processing plants. Um, but Americans um, just overwhelmingly disapprove of sending wild horses to slaughter. So BLM has had this massive problem over the last decade of accumulating wild horses um, and not being able to do anything with them. So they're literally, they are being contained, uh, confined in corrals on public lands. A few of them, the lucky ones, live on some ranches in Oklahoma. The BLM has paid ranchers to take them in. So um, so those are the lucky ones. Most of them are just in corrals. And there are probably more than, well, there's definitely more than 50. There's somewhere between 50 and 100,000 wild horses living uh, in corrals right now. So BLM has tried different ways to get rid of them. Like um, they have an adoption program. Um, they tried to work with local governments maybe to put these wild horses into police service. But the reality is, is there's just not that much demand for uh, horses in general, let alone ones that are were wild and are going to take work to um, break them in. Right. Mm-hmm. So over the years, BLM has tried to sort of like reduce restrictions on their adoption and sales programs in a way that um, maybe these horses make their way to slaughter mm-hmm. without BLM having actually be involved with it so basically turning a blind eye to who they're who they're selling them to or adopting them to what would they be slaughtered for if not for Uh, dog food primarily for dog food but in some cases for human consumption uh horse meat is still eaten in parts of the world including in europe wow i mean dog food in the united states we can have horse meat or dog food for other parts of the world uh, dog food for other parts of the world. So the, the the processing plants that made dog food from wild horses in the U.S. are all closed now. There are um, there are facility slaughterhouses both in Canada and in primarily in Mexico. So um, under this new adoption program, the uh, BLM is giving people up to a thousand dollars to take horses, and um, people are colluding together like groups of ten people, and they'll be adopting like forty at a time. And you just, that's just on its own. You just know that something's wrong there. These people aren't adopting them because they care about the horses. They're adopting 40 horses. They're getting 1000 bucks each, so 4000 bucks. Oh, excuse me. Um, yeah, 4000 bucks. Uh, and then they're, uh, they're selling them for a profit down in Mexico. 40000 you meant. Um, so it's $1,000 per person. So uh, what did okay. I say? 10 people? So it'd be, it would be 10,000. Oh, I, I thought you said per horse. I, I, I misunderstood. Gotcha. Oh, no, no. Um, you could, yeah, it's a incentive to uh, each individual to adopt horses. And then there's a limit of four horse, horses per individual. So um, the New York Times uh, uh, uncovered 
the trail of some of these horses uh, from BLM facilities to adopters to slaughterhouses. Mm-hmm. Good job, New York Times. Yeah, and so we just filed a lawsuit last week uh, challenging BLM's new adoption program. And they know. It's like wink, wink, nod, nod, right? Shh. They know that that's happening. Of course. Who, Who's going to adopt these horses in those numbers and take care of them, you know? Um, that's terrible. Just, yeah, it is. It, it is underhanded. But it has long been BLM's position that they need to slaughter these horses. And they have lobbied Congress year after year to eliminate that restriction on their activities. And, and um, you know, Congress has stayed firm. Uh, the public, you know, from all sides, really object to. I, I, I think the last poll numbers were in the 70 percentile range of Americans saying they would object to wild horses being slaughtered. And what type of horses are these? Are they Mustangs? Or like, I, not that I know much about horses, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, they technically are Mustangs. Um, wild horses are called Mustangs. But uh, they, their, their history really is horses evolved in North America. There's, there's literally no doubt about that. And uh, any horse anywhere in the world uh, found its roots here in North America, and then they traveled across the, you know, like humans did. They traveled across the land bridge into Asia. Um, uh, others may have made their way south towards South America, um, but primarily about ten thousand years ago, uh, wild horses were hunted by um, early Americans um, uh, uh, to, to near extinction. Uh, there's some debate over whether there were any horses left at all, but it was pretty clear that that uh, they were pretty much wiped out, if not completely wiped out, about 10,000 years ago. Um, and then what happened is, um, particularly the Spanish, uh, when they started to colonize uh, Mexico and the Southwest, they brought these horses back. So these horses had um, come from Europe, and then... The Navajo, in particular, used to do these large raids on the uh, Spanish settlements, and they would steal their horses. And a good number of those horses then would escape the Navajos. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't. I, yeah. I, I thought they start. I thought they did come from Spain and they originated on the European continent. But you're saying no, they originated everyone here. Everyone would agree that the Spanish just brought them home. Wow, that's fantastic. And then by around 1900. There were about a million wild horses roaming the West. And um, they then began uh, to be captured by just, you know, posses of, 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 of cowboys trying to make a buck. And they were either being sold off uh, uh, to um, dog, pro, uh, dog food companies in uh, the Midwest, uh, in Indiana, Illinois, or they were being sold to rodeos throughout the West. There's actually a Marilyn Monroe Clark Gable movie called The Misfits. I know, I love that movie. Yeah, and Clark Gable uh, was, you know, involved with a with a group of, of cowboys in Nevada, rounding up the wild horses from uh, um, the range. Oh, it's a real famous uh, uh, group of horses there outside of Carson City. Uh, the name's escaping me. Uh, and Marilyn Monroe finds out, and she's all objections to it, and pleading for him not to not to uh, participate in this 
this activity and decimate the horse population. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because when I, my, my recollection, my imagery of wild horses, a lot of it comes from me, me watching that movie when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, and then during that movie, actually, there, there was this woman, um, she was the wife of a rancher in, in Nevada. And her, her name was Annie, and I don't recall her last name because no one ever mentions it because she became known as Wild Horse Annie. And she personally crusaded to protect these horses. And um, Congress um, passed the Wild Horse and Burrow Act uh, in 1972, um, with her being, you know, like the main um, lobbyist behind me. She traveled to Washington. She just ring these people's ears off about horses and they all said, fine, fine, here, we'll do it. You know? And, and, um, and that's how we got these, these uh, protections established in 1972. And from about 1972 up until just about a decade ago, wild horses were pretty much left alone and their numbers began to increase. Um, and then uh, that is about, about 10 years ago is really when uh, we were able to, uh, Cattle became an international commodity for the first time. Um, we really weren't selling cattle overseas until about ten years ago. There were there were there were a lot of trade barriers that were removed, um, particularly with China about that time. And then the drought, of course, has been pretty persistent. So those two factors have really led to this war on our wild horses. Amazing. Michael R. Harris here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, environmental law attorney, professor, and director of the Wildlife Law Program for Friends of Animals, a great organization based in Connecticut. His office is in Denver, Colorado. And we only have a couple of minutes left, Michael. You know, this was a fascinating history lesson on wild horses. Uh, Thank you for it. And I'm wondering, just if uh, briefly, you could tell us a little bit about the uh, about uh, Cecil Law. Yeah. So, you know, we have been trying to get laws passed in both New York and Connecticut for several years now that would prohibit the sale and transfer of, of animal trophies. So the head of a, you know, of a, of a lion, uh, you know, the skin of a giraffe, of a, a giraffe or a, an elephant. These are uh, primarily African big species that are hunted for sport. And... Um, we have we have gotten really close many times in New York and Connecticut, but it wasn't until this year that we got it passed, and it was signed by the government. I think what uh, the governor about ten days ago, um, and we're really excited about that. We think it sends a really strong message, um, and this is coming at a time, of course, when the United Kingdom is debating prohibiting the um, import of of these type of trophies as well. And it's really on the sort of the world stage. Cecil, of course, was the lion that was killed by a hunter um, uh, about four or five years ago that made international news. And so, yeah. Was it the dentist? Was it a dentist that did it? I remember there was a... Yeah, it was a dentist uh, from, I think, Minnesota that that killed this lion. Uh, and And it was done illegally. Just another reason to not like dentists, I guess. There you go. Yeah, they—they're they're just not good people all around. I guess <laughs> we're just kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So big, the Big Five African Trophies Act, I think, is is the real name. Uh, the Cecil Law is the nickname in honor of that 
great lion killed by that not-so-great dentist. Uh, and it, it uh, protects elephants, giraffes, leopards, lions, and rhinos. Those are the big tro- the five uh, African trophies, right? That's correct, yeah. And uh, it, would, it would prohibit them from being transferred around in commerce within the state. So if you get if you get one of these trophies in Africa, you can't control that here in the U.S. You you can control whether or not they'll be allowed through the ports. That's the philo- that's the philosophy. That's the the strategy, right? That's the philosophy and strategy. And, and then of course they're the secondary sale of these things um, in the United States, um, and particularly their skins. You know, I mean, a lot of people are bringing them back uh, to sell them. Um, uh, quite honestly, it's really pretty sad, but elephant skin leather is a thing right now um for making shoes and luggage Mm. uh that was reported by national geographic about three years ago that there's been this huge spike in um in demand for for elephant skin wow well i'm so excited to hear about these developments i'm also very heartened to know that yourself and your colleagues at friends of animals are on it Always, you're filing lawsuits left and right, and oftentimes winning, even before you have to get to court, it seems. So, you know, my my compliments, sir, and thank you so much for sharing uh, a lot of this uh, valuable information and and the valuable insight here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, Michael R. Harris. Oh, it's my pleasure, E.W. I I appreciate the opportunity to do so. Uh, I'll talk to you again soon, my friend. Enjoy July. Yeah, happy 4th. Happy 4th. Bye-bye. Shine! Hey! Oh!
And now an excerpt from an essay titled The First Step, written by Leo Tolstoy in 1909, translated by Elmer Maud. Fasting is an indispensable condition of a good life, but in fasting, as in self-control in general, the question arises with what shall we begin? How to fast? How often to eat? What to eat? What to avoid eating? And as we can do no work seriously without regarding the necessary order of sequence, so also we cannot fast without knowing where to begin with what to commence self-control in food. Fasting, and even an analysis of how to fast, and where to begin. The notion seems ridiculous and wild to the majority of men. I remember how, with pride at his originality, an evangelical preacher who was attacking monastic asceticism once said to me, Ours is not a Christianity of fasting and privations, but of beefsteaks. Christianity, or virtue in general, and beefsteaks? During a long period of darkness and lack of all guidance, pagan or Christian, so many wild, immoral ideas have made their way into our life, especially into that lower region of the first steps toward a good life, our relation to food, to which no one paid any attention. That it is difficult for us even to understand the audacity and senselessness of upholding in our days Christianity or virtue with beefsteaks. We are not horrified by this association, solely because a strange thing has befallen us. We look and see not, listen and hear not. There is no bad odor, no sound, no monstrosity to which man cannot become so accustomed that he ceases to remark what would strike a man unaccustomed to it. Precisely so it is in the moral region. Christianity and morality with beefsteaks. A few days ago, I visited the slaughterhouse in our town of Tula. It is built on the new and improved system practiced in large towns, with a view to causing the animals as little suffering as possible. It was on a Friday, two days before Trinity Sunday. There were many cattle there. Long before this, I had wished to visit a slaughterhouse in order to see with my own eyes the reality of the question raised when vegetarianism is discussed. But at first, I felt ashamed to do so, as one is always ashamed of going to look at suffering which one knows is about to take place, but which one cannot avert, and so I kept putting off my visit. But a little while ago, I met on the road a butcher returning to Tula after a visit to his home. He is not yet an experienced butcher, and his duty is to stab with a knife. I asked him whether he did not feel sorry for the animals that he killed. He gave me the usual answer, Why should I feel sorry? It is necessary. But when I told him that eating flesh is not necessary, but is only a luxury, he agreed and then he admitted that he was sorry for the animals. But what can I do? I must earn my bread, he said. At first I was afraid to kill, 
My father, he never even killed a chicken in all his life. The majority of Russians cannot kill. They feel pity and express the feeling by the word fear. This man had also been afraid, but he was so no longer. He told me that most of the work was done on Fridays, when it continues until the evening. Not long ago, I also had a talk with a retired soldier, a butcher, and he too was surprised at my assertion that it was a pity to kill, and said the usual things about its being ordained. But afterwards, he agreed with me. Especially when they are quiet, tame cattle, they come, poor things, trusting you. It is very pitiful, he said. This is dreadful, not the suffering and death of the animals, but that man suppresses in himself unnecessarily the highest spiritual capacity, that of sympathy and pity toward living creatures like himself, and by violating his own feelings becomes cruel. And how deeply seated in the human heart is the injunction not to take life. Once, when walking from Moscow, I was offered a lift by some carters who were going from Superhof to a neighboring forest to fetch wood. It was the Thursday before Easter. I was seated in the first cart with a strong, red, coarse carman who evidently drank. On entering a village, we saw a well-fed, naked, pink pig being dragged out of the first yard to be slaughtered. It squealed in a dreadful voice, resembling the shriek of a man. Just as we were passing, they began to kill it. A man gashed its throat with a knife. The pig squealed still more loudly and piercingly, broke away from the men, and ran off covered with blood. Being nearsighted, I did not see all the details. I saw only the human-looking pink body of the pig and heard its desperate squeal. But the carter saw all the details and watched closely. They caught the pig, knocked it down, and finished cutting its throat. When its squeals ceased, the carter sighed heavily. Do men really not have to answer for such things, he said. So strong is man's aversion to all killing. But by example, by encouraging greediness, by the assertion that God has allowed it, and above all, by habit, people entirely lose this natural feeling.
Mint. Garbage trucks rumble by on the second day of July. The country is preparing to celebrate its independence. A pandemic in check. New furniture on the deck. Alongside tomato plants, peppers, mint, and lettuce. Soon to be picked and eaten in the fresh air under the sun and blue, blue sky.
And there you have it, episode 428 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Michael R. Harris, Leo Tolstoy, and these musical artists, Thelonious Monk, the Nude Party, Elvis Presley, Miriam Makeba, Miles Davis, The Heartless Bastards, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. And of course, I would like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.